Today's sermon text is Exodus 1, 5 through 14, and then 2, 23 to 25. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Egypt, or Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters, taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. This is God's word. Good morning. Last week we began a little bit of overview and an, an introduction. This week we're digging into the story itself. And um, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, we'll be in chapters one and two. We'll be moving through that. The text will be on the screen. Um, but I wanted to talk to specifically uh, what we find we see God doing in this these passages and also um, what how this fits into the grand narrative and scheme of what God is doing overall. And then to bring that down to us, and what does that mean in relation to how he is engaging and acting with his people today? Um, it's somewhat of a big task, but I know that with God's spirit, we can move through this together, and I'm hopeful that uh, he will teach us this morning as we read his word, because it doesn't return void. So if you would pray with me, I'm going to pray that God's spirit would join with us as we begin. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for your kindness. I thank you for your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that uh, this morning, as we open up your word in Exodus, uh, God, you will make yourself evident uh, as we read, as we learn, as we grow. And God, that, uh, that your spirit would move in us to fill us and to make us more like Jesus. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, so Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 are, is what we're covering, and there's a, it's quite a, a large span of time that's actually being covered through this. We don't know precisely how much time is being covered, but we do know it's a long period because it starts off with Jacob and his family coming to Israel, and it ends with already Moses being born and 400 years of potential um, slavery that's already been, been gone. The Israelites have been involved in, in bondage within, within Israel, uh, within Egypt. So when we read through this, though, why do we want to take such a big chunk out of it? Well, there's a reason that I want to capture these pieces together, and I want to draw your attention to that before we move in to get started into the actual story that's being laid out for us. The first two chapters of Exodus are somewhat book-ended, captured together as a whole thought. And the book ended in the beginning with uh, starting with a mention of the covenant people of God. Uh, there's the beginning starts with Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Israel, Jacob, Isaac's son, Abraham's son, 
the, the children of promise, the children of covenant from Genesis. This actually parallels Genesis 46, 8, almost exactly where it says these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt and then begins to list out in far more detail than we see in the summary. So, so Exodus is starting out, the writer is starting out, actually the first portion of it is a connecting word. We don't see it necessarily in every version, but it says, and these are the names, as if the story is continuing, calling us back to God's covenant that's already been laid out and his design that's been put forward in Genesis. We talked about this last week. In Genesis, God creates the world, and in Exodus, God creates a nation. So we're having the call back in the beginning of this. And then towards the end of this chapter two, we also see that same language. Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter two in verses 23 through 25, where it summarizes this entire story by saying this, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. Remember, they've been in slavery. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So this entire section is bookended by the covenant. The introduction of God's people who moved into Egypt, and then the close of chapter 2 with God remembering his covenant. But what I want to also draw our attention to is that in the story between those two, God is conspicuously absent. There are stories of people doing things, moving, kings oppressing, God's people fearing him. There's a reference to two midwives, and the only reference to God you see there is that they feared God, and then he blessed them because of that. But that's it. The turn here at the end of chapter two is actually the beginning of what we'll get to next week where God is very clearly, evidently, miraculously engaged and involved. He shows up in a burning bush and Moses hears from the bush and talks to him and then delivers the message. And then he comes in all of creation to literally, to, to, to attack and to push back Pharaoh so that he releases his people through the plagues. And then he divides the Red Sea. He's actively working in a way that's visible and miraculous. But for these first two chapters, we don't hear anything from God. And the reason I want to draw our attention to that is because I think that uh, what I believe and what seems apparent is that the author is wanting to provide for us some of the tension and the angst that Israel is experiencing during those 400 years. Because during that time of of their enslavement and their slavery, they surely were crying out in pain before chapter 223, before the end when Moses is born. They're they are surely crying out for help. But they are quite possibly in a situation where you and I can, at this time in our life as believers, probably most clearly and directly relate to. At times where we are in trials, and times when we are facing what we feel like is oppression, what we see we're pushed down when we are in difficult dry seasons in the desert, if you will. And we're asking questions like the psalmist who says, where is God? Where is God in all this? That same very thought is drawn out in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3, where the psalmist points out the fact from the beginning that God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. And he says that as if this is true, I'm trying to remind myself. But then the next portion he says, But as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray, for I envy the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Simultaneously, he is trying to remind himself, God is very, very good, but where are you in all of this trial and all of these devastating events, the evil that we see in the world? Where are you, God? And what I want us to do today is as we look at this passage, I want us to remember as, as the oldest saying of the ancient church summarizes in Deus pro nobis. I'm not saying that right probably, but Deus pro nobis, God for us. God for us. And so I, tr- I want us to look at that last passage and see what is it that God is doing here at the very end of this chapter. How does it summarize his relationship? Well, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant and God saw the Israelites and God knew. And what I would put forward is that is not just a summary of what happens next, but in fact, what has been going on through the entire span of time that Israel has been in bondage. And what is true about us if we are God's people for the entire time and every bit of suffering and every bit of difficulty and every trial and every tribulation that we face, God hears you God sees you, and God knows you. He hears, he sees, he knows his people, and he is always on a mission of redemption. And this is a difficult topic that I want to try to uncover because when we look at these passages, when we look at the story that's unfolding in chapter one and two, we can say God is always near and working because we see the big picture of the entire book of Exodus. But in the moment, when we zoom in, is a very, very, very difficult truth. Because for all of us, Remember, Moses is preserved. Moses is, as a baby, his life is preserved. He is the deliverer that God has chosen to work through, but there were countless babies that weren't. There were families that lost infants. There were countless, during hundreds of years, men and women and children who were oppressed, who were pressed down, who were burdened, and who were, as the passage says, dealt with ruthlessly. And they did not feel God's presence all the time. See, we're all most often not necessarily the Moses character in life, right? We feel that oppression. I know, sometimes I walk through my life like I've I've got my own theme song and I'm the main character, right? I know me, I know my thing. But in reality is we are far too much more like a lot of the Israelites who have to just trust and wait. And they don't always see God's hand. But we need to learn to trust his heart. So when we zoom in to these particular stories, what I want us to carry with us and remember is that God is sovereign and he's provident. That even though his presence of him acting actively, being active in these stories aren't there, he is working. And he is ultimately working for their redemption. And as we've looked out in the trajectory of the story, he ultimately is working for the redemption of all his people in Christ. And let's look a little bit here at sovereignty and providence because I think these are words we can throw around in, in, in church circles because I want us to get an understanding for what I mean by that. See, when I say sovereignty, sovereignty is just the absolute power and authority to act. But with it carries no implication of goodness or purpose, just that he has authority. 
So for example, we see kings around the world, they don't have 100% God-level authority, but in their country, they have authority, they have power, and they don't always act good, and they don't always act with clear purpose. But they have sovereignty. And sometimes they use that to oppress their people. Sometimes they use that, as we see currently, to attack other nations and to act ruthlessly for their own greed. Pharaoh, in the beginning of this story, does that. He acts for his own self-interest. So that's sovereignty, but God not only is sovereign, but we can also say he has purpose. He has mission, and he is good. And that's when we can start to look where we trust not only in his sovereignty, but we can trust in his providence. And he is guiding with a purpose, with a direction, with an end in mind. And what's helpful is to consider the word providence, where it origin comes from, to provide and maybe anybody familiar with the term Vini Vidi Vici? Huh? No feedback from the audience? Audience interaction, <laughs> right? I came, I saw, I conquered. Everybody familiar with that phrase? Okay. Well, provide actually comes from a combination of some of those Latin words. Pro meaning into the future or before, before. And then vide, I, what is that? Which part is that? I saw. So it's, it's in, very, in very literal translation has to do with to see into the future, to foresee. But it's not only that, because to provide is to foresee into the future and to act, to actively do something about it, to provide for a future need, right? right? So like if my kids are hungry, right, they're going to eat this week. I have foreknowledge of that. At some point, they're going to be hungry. They're going to want to eat. So we provide food in our home. Sometimes it's not the right food. Sometimes they open the cabinets and it doesn't look like we did provide. Sometimes I open the cabinets and I'm like, there's nothing to eat here, but it's just I wanted candy or something else. But the truth is, God is so much more above us in that he sees and he acts and he provides. And to see that connection as well in providence, if we can look back at the story of Abraham in Genesis 22:8, when he's taking Isaac to go up the mountain to sacrifice, God asks him to take Isaac and he goes in obedience. When Isaac asks him, where's the ram? Where's the lamb? What are we sacrificing? You know, nervous like some of us were. Hey, I know we're doing a sacrifice. It's just me and you, dad. Where's, where's the lamb? All right. Abraham answers God himself. The CSB reads it. Abraham answered, God himself provided, and I'm sorry, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That is actually literally God will see. So as to tell us, when God sees, he also sees to his purpose. He sees and he acts. He doesn't see and not act. He doesn't see and not provide. And then later on, Abraham says in 22:14 of that same passage, once God provided the lamb, he names the place the Lord will provide. Translated literally, the Lord sees. So God sees, God hears, God knows his people, and he cares for them. Not just knows them, but he cares for them, and he's always working for his redemption. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom into this story, and I want to take a look closer at five separate ways in which God is working in his people. Five circumstances that we read about in these stories and how he works through them. And then I want us to consider as we do, how is God providentially working, and how does this relate to me? How does this connect to me? What is he doing? So look with me in chapter uh, 1, starting in verse 6. 
right after we've heard, uh, and, and let me take a back, step back, starting right there in verse um, 5, actually. So in verse 5, and we're going to see that God works through trials and oppression, okay? So in verse 5, we see this. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. This is a little foreshadowing. Joseph was already in Egypt. Why was he in Egypt? Because he was captured and put into slavery by his brothers. And in, we, in chapter 50, we read that even though he was captured, sent into Israel, and actually a tragic story. There's nothing about his time in Israel that's, that's, that should, is, is admirable or desirable for us. Even when he was promoted to the point of second in command over all of Egypt, he was still not with God's people. He was outside of God's people. But when Jacob dies and his brothers are concerned, hey, Joseph, now that Jacob's gone, are you gonna kill us? He says, no, who am I? Am I God? What you meant for evil, God used for good. And this is foreshadowing this text. God is working even in your evil. And then we move on to verse six. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. This is the end of that generation. And what happens during the course of that time? But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly and multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. This right here is exactly parallel to a, a, what is the creation mandate and what also is arguably the first mission mandate. Genesis 1.28 reads, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden and God says, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. You are my image bearer, fill the earth with my image. Before they were broken, before they sinned, before sin entered the picture, you perfectly image me, fill the earth with it. And now we see Egypt, in Egypt, Israel is doing exactly that. They were fruitful, they increased rapidly, they multiplied, they extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Filling the land. So they're fulfilling God's creation mandate. His mission to fill the world with his image. But then verse eight, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. A new king, new change in political power, change in authority. A new king shows up. He doesn't know Joseph and he came to power. A shift from what was a friendly leadership to one that's not. We don't know why the king didn't know him. If it was outright just ignorance, it, unlikely, it seems strange because in Egypt they keep meticulous records. They had meticulous records of the, of the official records. We have very little documents because the desert's not holding a lot of that stuff. But man, when stuff was written in stone, they knew who led what. And so this king shows up and he's either some shift in power that loses that or whatever reason. But we don't know two things. We don't know why he doesn't know Joseph and we don't know who he is. And that's a detail we're thinking, why God, why don't you give us this? When we give us a name, we can figure it out. And it's not like God's hiding stuff intentionally because there's other places where he's crazy detailed. You know, we know who the governor of the town is and the, and the, and the Caesar is when Christ is born in Luke 2. We know specific areas. Later, he mentioned specific cities that were built. So they're naming stuff. So why is the author leaving it out? Because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. Because a new king that's like many other kings, greedy for power, came into authority and used it for evil. And God is still sovereign. And this is what he said in verse nine. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. 
Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies. A new political leader opposing God's command to be fruitful and multiply, he sees God's people doing that, and he wants to crush that and push it down. And let me just take a, a moment to acknowledge something and recognize something in this passage. What is the reason that he's wanting to, to do this? It's because he's concerned about power. It's because he's concerned about those people rising up and taking over. It's because he's concerned about Egypt losing its authority and this Semitic people taking it over. That's not unfounded. That actually happened in Egyptian history by another group of people. So maybe that was in his mind. Here comes these people. There were some 600,000 men that left during the Exodus, near 2 million estimate of altogether people. Egypt itself in that, in that era would have been around somewhere between one and two million people itself. They're, they're overpowering. So this people is growing up and for political expediency, the king says, let's, let's crush this before it becomes a problem. And if I might on the side note, Believers, there's all too much a temptation as we become very divided in our nation politically to try to be politically expedient for the sake of power. There's a temptation for that. It doesn't mean don't engage. It doesn't mean don't do your best. It does mean don't hate on people who might have a different opinion than you. And don't sacrifice holiness and the mission of God for political expediency. You know, it might be political expedient and it might preserve your power of what party you want to be in place. But if we are being, if we are sacrificing holiness and the mission of God, we're acting a lot more like Pharaoh than God's people. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. So as God's people, let's not be like Pharaoh is in this instance because what is he doing? He wants to press down the multiplication wants to fight against what God is doing and multiplying his people. And how does he want to do it? In verse 11, so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites and oppressed them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more, don't miss this, don't miss this. What's he do? He pushes forced labor on them. This is very, it's not, when he says slavery, God, just so you know, this isn't like each individual Egyptian was owning a different Israelite, okay? That's not ownership slavery. There's several different types of slavery going on in this time. This is, this is state-sponsored bondage, okay? And what's happening is what they're doing is they're actually, do, it's a type of taxation. We have this historical record in, in Egypt where they would actually, they could take a people, they could make a group of people work for some of these grand building schemes. I mean, we got the pyramids, we got large stonework, stuff has happened in Egypt. They can actually almost like a tax, hey guys, you got to come work for us. And there was usually some payment involved, but for Israel in particular, for, for the Hebrew people in particular, Pharaoh's trying to use that to subdue them, so they're being aggressive and, and ruthless with them, with the work they're putting on them, to crush their spirits. D not enough to where they might rebel and cause an issue, but just enough to keep them subdued. But here's what we have to note. The more, they the more that they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. See God working? When it would crush the spirit of most people, the Israelites are still multiplying. And it doesn't stop Egypt because they worked the Israelites, they worked them ruthlessly. And why did they do it? Because the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread them. They were scared of this people that God was using. 
They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter and difficult labor. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. But God's working and he's multiplying God's people. Brothers and sisters, as we face trials and oppressions, God is working for his purposes. Even though they were being pressed down, they were multiplying and God was blessing them the way he promised to from the beginning. He had a purpose in mind and they didn't know what it was, but Egypt couldn't crush it. So he works through our oppression and trials, but he also in the next story works through our faithfulness. Verses 15 through 22, because now Egypt, Pharaoh has given up, if you were, on the slavery. He said, slavery's not quite doing it. What's my next step? Well, he says, the king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. Now he is recruiting uh, midwives, people who are supposed to be caring for and delivering infants. He's like, hey, I need you to do me something. Here, I need something. We need to kill the baby boys. Every time one's born, kill it. This is, he's, he is scared and fearful and he is trying to push this people down. And he recruits Shifra and Pua. For so many people, this is likely like a supervisor, two little representatives for the group. Like, can you imagine how difficult it would be for two people to serve like 600,000 different families or 100,000, 20,000? If it was only 20,000, two, no two midwives ain't working. So this is likely maybe some, some, some supervision for them. But here's what, how they respond. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God. They feared God more than Pharaoh. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live so that the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? Like, what's up, guys? I just told you to do this and you're not doing it. And the text tells us because they feared God. They weren't looking to make a big, huge social statement. They, they simply were refusing to destroy God's image bearers because they feared God and they respected him and his life that he created. And God worked through that. But how do they respond to Pharaoh? The midwife said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. And these are some, these are, these are some really healthy women. They just, baby's out, we can't do nothing about it. Just quit like that. I mean, it's almost, they, they can't wait on us. Babies are coming so fast. Sorry, I can't do anything about it. Now, technically, here's the deal. This is, this is a little complicated. Only a side note. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. There's a compli- Some people have an argument. Like, did they lie? Is it okay to lie? Why would they lie? Well, there's all kinds of discussions about this. There's people who actually will try to navigate what it looks like to lie. I mean, give an example. In, in, in the, um, during the Holocaust, if you're hiding a Jewish family in your attic, is it okay to, I mean, they come in and say, hey, you got a family here? Oh, yeah, they're in the attic. Or is it okay to say, no, we're not, to save a life. Well, there's debates about this, but I want you guys to draw attention to something here. There could be several different ways we can look at this. We can say, uh, as some have defined, lying is actually uh, giving information to someone who deserves it. That's, that's a definition I've seen given out there. There's articles on it. Sam Storms is someone who's written one. Um, there's, there's other views of this, like, for example, hey, this is pre-law, you know? Uh, they haven't given the commandment to say, thou shalt not lie, right? Okay, we can talk about that. Here's what I think is most important. 
When God responds to them in verse 20, it says God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So here's what's clear. They were deceptive in some respect, right? They didn't tell Pharaoh exactly the truth on why they were being born, but God blessed them. So God honor lying. Why does it God bless them? Because they feared God. This should be incredibly freeing for us as God's people. Pursue obedience, fear, and reverence to God and trust him ultimately because none of us are gonna do that perfectly. The reason that they didn't give all information to Pharaoh one one way or the other was because they feared God more than Pharaoh and they didn't want to dishonor his image. And, this, and the interesting thing here being, how did, God res, how did God reward them? By doing exactly what Pharaoh was trying to stop, giving them families. He's adding babies to the mix. There's more babies coming, Pharaoh. More babies. And in 22, Pharaoh, at the end of his ropes, because the midwives aren't getting it done, he now recruits all of his people. He tells all of his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile but let every daughter live. How tragic is that? Don't miss that. An entire nation turned against the Hebrews. It it foreshadows, if you will, the kind of destruction that comes during the plagues that everyone was guilty. That they were throwing babies, exposing them to the danger of the Nile, throwing them where crocodiles lived. How gruesome this is in this time period and that Pharaoh was so thirsty for power that he wanted to crush the Israelites and throw their babies into the river. He recruits the entire people. But don't miss that just Shifra and Pua's faithfulness, God was working. He preserved lives. No matter what Pharaoh tried to do, he was preserving lives and preserved many lives of his people. And so now Pharaoh has turned and tried to ag- aggressively attack every bit of, of, of the families of God. He's got all of his, his people recruited for that purpose. And we see the third story coming up in verse t- uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and where God is working through common grace. And let me set the stage on why I say common grace. And let's read the story. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son, And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. This is our introduction to Moses. He doesn't have the name yet, but he's born and he's beautiful. No, it's interesting, right? She's like, hey, the baby does, he looks good. Let's save him. You know, that's what it sounds like. This one's a pretty one. Every every mom and dad thinks their kid's cute and beautiful, right? But we can all collectively agree in here that's not true, right? Is that, is this a safe space for that? Um, I had a friend of mine. I had a friend, now my kids were adorable. Um, uh, I had a friend who, who admitted to the fact that he once had a mom who was sitting there, look, he was looking at the baby and he didn't mean it insultingly, but he was looking and the, and the, and the mom was like, don't do this moms. The mom was like, isn't she cute? <laughs> Cause now it's like we're in the Shifra and Pua section. Like, do I lie and protect her? Our <laughs> adore, babies are great. Uh, but instead he said, you know, as long as she's cute to you, that's what really matters. Now, he said the baby was cute and pretty. He said it was, that's not what I meant. I just meant, like, who cares what other people think? But it definitely didn't come out right. But in this case, the reason that she preserves, it says because he's beautiful. And really, it's because desirable, because it's very similar to Genesis when he says God looked on his creation and said it was good. It was like that motherly instinct, seeing the baby and saying, 
when she saw him, she hid him for three months. I can't, I can't let this baby be destroyed. And, and, and this is zoomed into one story. It's very likely, it is actually probably, I would say, to the point of, of almost certain other moms are doing the same thing. I mean, your mom's in here, dad's in here, you're not hiding your kids? Absolutely. And in this case, this Levite woman is hiding her baby. And in verse three, maybe you guys can relate to this, when she could no longer hide him, right? Right, the baby's gonna do a point saying, don't you know they'll kill you? Be quiet, doesn't work for kids. Three months old, how's that work for you? All right, so she couldn't hide him anymore. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. Quite literally, the second, this is the second time, the only time in Old Testament, a reference to an ark. Noah's ark, Moses put in an ark. Um, the basket is coated with asphalt and pitch. It's sealed up to be waterproof, and she placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen. Almost, uh, interestingly so, she must have intentionally put the baby in a place where crocodiles towards the southern side where they're not hanging out because there's portions of the Nile and tributaries you can go to. So she knew, likely not going to put the kid a place where it's going to cry and Croc's going to get it, right? That's like Mom 101. Like, let's not put the baby in the crocodile's mouth, right? All right, so she goes there. But also, it's telling because Pharaoh's daughter is bathing there. So again, probably where the crocs aren't hanging out, right? All right, so, so she's putting the baby there. We don't, we don't see it being explicit, but possibly intentionally trying to get the baby in a place where someone like her would see. So mom's being a little shrewd. She's being thoughtful. She places the baby there and has sis hang back and watch. And what happens in verse five? Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile where the servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, saw him, the child, and there he was, a little boy crying. And what happened? What happened in her heart? She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. She knew who the baby was. Her dad is on a mission to kill them all and commanded all people to throw the babies in the water. But she felt sorry for him. God worked through the kindness and mercy that is God's image in Pharaoh's daughter. We have no indica indication that Pharaoh's daughters ever comes to fear God, the Ab God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see no indication anywhere throughout the story that she becomes to believe and trust in him but she holds and bears God's image. And her kindness and compassion came through in such a way that that kind of a common grace was used by God to preserve Moses' life. God works through everyone, including those unbelievers in your life. Don't discount anybody. There's a way in which God can shape, teach, preserve, and guide you, even through people who might not seem to trust him in, on the surface but we can grow together. God worked through her kindness and mercy. And what's ironic is Pharaoh's daughter preserved the very baby that would bring the exodus the Pharaohs feared. In addition to that, in verse seven, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing and nurse the boy for you? And she says, go. Pharaoh's daughter told her, go. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I'll pay you wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. So Moses' mom is getting to raise him up and wean him, nurse him and getting paid to do it and under the protection of Pharaoh's house. Yeah, it's silent about God's 
God in this story, but he is working. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So Moses gets the benefit. God preserved and equipped Moses through his common grace shown him in Pharaoh's household. Through her compassion and kindness, she saved him, preserved his life. And then later on, he gets the benefit of being grown up, raised, educated, and taught in Pharaoh's household. All because of common grace. And kindness, his kindness. Fourth, we want to look at how God works through our own failures. 11 through 15. Years later, after Moses had grown up, this is somewhere in a feast like 30 some 40 years old at this point, he went out to his own people and he observed their forced labor. We don't know why. He knows he's their people. We don't know explicitly that he knows that, uh, other than the text infers it. So for some reason, he knows that they are his people, whenever that is. The prince of Egypt says that he found that out because he shows up at their house. Huh? All right. I watched the movie. All right. <laughs> um, but in this case, that's speculation. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. We do know that. One of his people. Looking all around, seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. Oh, wait. Let's, let's take a step back before I get to that part. He, 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 Moses sees his people being struck. He sees them beating. The, the verb there for that beating is the exact same one for him striking down the Egyptians. So it's violent. We know historically Egyptians would beat you just as soon as look at you. This is not uncommon. And they were aggressive about it. At that point, they have, I mean, they're like, they're like crafting images on walls showing canings. I mean, they're just, they're, 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 they're preserving these things. So we know that they would find somebody, think they were guilty of something. They'd beat them to find out if they were. That was, it was not our, our, our trial system, right? Okay. And so in this case, Moses, for some reason, has compassion because it's aggressive and he strikes out. He lashes out. But we know he's not intending. He doesn't want to get caught because it says he looks back and forth. He's looking around. Anybody checking this out? Let's see what I'm doing. So he's not acting in faith necessarily. We don't see God explicitly telling him to do this, but he kills. He takes a life. So all of these things come together. It just looks like it's not supposed to happen this way. But Moses is acting impetuously. He's making a decision in the moment. And then in verse 13, he goes out the next day. He goes and he sees two Hebrews who are fighting. Again, the same phrase here. Apparently one of them is in the wrong, is attacking the other. He asks the same verb. Beatings are happening with the Egyptians. Apparently the Hebrews are doing something similar to each other. And he says, why are you attacking your neighbor? And now... Israelites, showing them they know about him and also trying to put him in his place. Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So what happens? Moses kills somebody out of rash action. He gets called out and Pharaoh finds out about it and he flees out of the country. But here's what I want us to note. Moses did stand up for his people, but it seems like he handled it the wrong way. At the same time, God used his failure to force him out of Egypt, something that needed to happen, and away from the comfort of royal court life. He obviously had compassion for his people, but he was still wearing the Egyptian garb because in the next story, we'll see that the Midianites thought he was Egyptian. They called him Egyptian. So he looked the part. 
And what I would argue is, and what I think the text is showing us, is before God could use Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, he had to get Egypt out of Moses. And so Moses may have done the wrong thing, but God used it to accomplish his purpose. His failure didn't preclude God from using him later, right? He comes back and leads and delivers his people out. And what I wanna encourage all of us in here is your failures do not preclude God from using you for his glory either. Though we falter, though we stumble, though we may choose wrongly in a moment or over time, God can still redeem us for his glory. And he redeems this this moment in Moses' life for his glory. And that moves him into the desert and where God can also still work in our lives through the desert, verses 16 through 22. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to the rescue and watered their flock. Remember, he fled Egypt and he sat down on the well. He's at the well and he protects these, these ladies who are watching their father's flock. He protects them from the shepherds who are trying to force them away from the well. In verse 18, and I love their father, by the way. This is such a dad move, sorry. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? Normally this doesn't happen. Like you normally have problems with shepherds, you do your thing, how are you back so quick? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Dad hears, hey, there's this really great guy in town who protected my daughters. I've got seven daughters, seven daughters. I'm not gonna support them the rest of my life. Verse 20, so where is he? He asked his daughters, why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Have him over, this guy. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Probably much longer story there, okay? He's like, he comes for dinner, great. You seem like a nice guy, Zipporah's yours. By the way, that means uh, female bird or ladybird. So that's her name, all right, <laughs> Zipporah. And he, he, he gives her to Zipporah in marriage. Zipporah and Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. And here's the part that really stands out. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. He names the baby. It's been nine months at least, if not more. So he's almost a year there. And he still feels as a resident alien in a foreign land. And here's what I, I want us to, to, to recognize. Moses was a stranger in a foreign land. Scripture doesn't really record anything as notably glorious about his 40 years as a shepherd. We're gonna fast forward next week. We'll get to when he's at the bush. He's been 40 years as a shepherd. But God is using that time. This Egyptian prince who's enjoyed all the wonderful trappings of court life, God is using this time to humble him, to shape him, and to prepare Moses to lead Israel. God is at work even in your dry seasons. God is at work in the waiting. God is at work when you're in the desert, like Moses, when he's out there in some steady, uncertain space, just watching sheep. Maybe you have some grand plans for your life that you've set in motion. Maybe you have a direction you wanna get and it just doesn't seem to be clicking. It doesn't seem to be checking. Maybe you're at a job that just seems to be like a filler. But God is still at work in the desert. He has purpose and he he sees you, and he will accomplish that purpose. 
We read earlier from the passage in Psalm where in verse 73 it says that God didn't, that, uh, that the psalmist didn't understand what God was doing and he felt himself tempted after what the unbelievers had. And, and, and what, what I want us to recognize is that we're not all promised deliverance from everyday storms of trials of life, but God is working in them and through them. He may not be protecting you, guarding you, or pushing away the oppression or the desert or the trial or the circumstance. He may leave you in it, but he is using it and working through it and working in it to shape us, to guide us, to teach us. That doesn't mean we need to search out oppression. Don't hear that, please. And that doesn't mean if you're in a trial that it means just stay there and be there. When you're in abusive situations, when you're in a place where a work, work, a, a boss or a spouse or other is violent or whatever those circumstances, that's not me saying rest and God is working. Uh, it, we don't search that out. Nowhere in scripture does it say search out to be a victim. But sometimes there's no way out. For Israel, there was not an opportunity to get away. And so in those moments, we're not promised our deliverance, but we're promised God is with us. He sees us, he hears us, and he knows us. And the psalmist in chapter 73 actually goes on, and this is my encouragement to you in this same way. How do we respond when we're in those moments? Well, he says in chapter, 16, chapter 73, verses 16 through 17, he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. When it seems lost, when things seem oppressive, when you're in a trial or when you're in the desert, we need to press into God's sanctuary, to his presence, to try to understand what he's doing. Then I understood their destiny. Who do I have in heaven but you? But God is the strength. Uh, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You're, you destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I can tell about all you do. God is at work in each of those circumstances, and God is at work ultimately for redemption. And when I point to the future and I say redemption for us, we have to remember that God has, we, we live in this side of the cross of Christ where God's people were placed in Israel and that they flourished and grew to the point that Christ was born and came into history. And he did that through his people that he blessed in Egypt. The people he made a nation for his purpose. And God worked in slavery and bondage, but he formed them into a people. And we're gonna read further as he goes to the desert and makes them a nation, but that nation brought us Christ. And Christ was ultimately the perfect Moses, the deliverer, the better Moses, the better Israel, the better son, the one who died. He lived perfectly and died for us on our behalf so that we might ultimately be redeemed from all bondage to sin. So we are in this in-between, this trial where, where oppression and threats and trials occur because we live in a sinful world. But we do know who the Redeemer is and we do know where deliverance comes from. And he's provided a way. And in knowing that, God, sh we, should, we should be able to respond in one of a, a couple ways. I want to encourage you in a couple ways that we can respond. We can respond by being comforted 
but being comforted first. Find comfort in the fact that while you don't always know what God's doing, he is present, he is working. And then secondly, be encouraged. Not only find comfort, but find courage. Because God's people, just like they were part of God's mission and plan, if we are God's people, if we are one of his children, we are also part of that mission. And we should be able to feel comforted and be encouraged to walk through life emboldened in our witness. As, as David Platt titled one of his sermons, it should be fuel of death-defying missions. There should be nothing that scares us because we know the God who's in control. It doesn't need to be miraculous and amazing. It could be just simply talking boldly and encouraging in truth your neighbor, your family, your coworker. And for some of us in here, it could mean packing everything up and going overseas for the sake of God's mission. And I'll close with this passage from 2 Corinthians where Paul encourages the Corinthians in just the same exact way. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. That is who God's people are. We're not destroyed. We have confidence for comfort and encouragement in our people and through, through God as his people and through our trials, through our faithfulness, through common grace, through our failures, through the desert, God sees, God hears, God sees, and God knows his people. He loves and cares for us and he is always on a mission of redemption. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for the way that you show yourself in this passage. Thank you for the way that you worked in Israel and for the way you work in our lives. God, grant us today the privilege of seeing and knowing you more deeply and still in our hearts a love for you. Make Christ more affection, more glorious for us. Stir our affections for him. And God, embolden our confidence in you as the God who loves us, cares for us in your providence. God, we're thankful. Make us more like Christ. And we act all this, ask all this in his name. Amen.